one of the realities is that you can't be your own doctor, just like you can't be your own therapist. That's Dr. Stephen O'Connor, chief of the Suicide Prevention Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. So it's really critical that there's the freedom for people to be able to not have to solve all their own problems themselves, but be able to share that with other people so they can get some outside perspective. In this episode of Moving Medicine, Dr. O'Connor moderates a panel of three physician experts discussing the mental health support physicians may need and negative stigma surrounding it. He's joined by Dr. Christine U. Moutier, Chief Medical Officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Dr. Scott Pazichow, Assistant EMS Medical Director and Emergency Medicine and EMS Physician at Southern Illinois University, and Dr. Dan Miller, Practicing Family Physician and Chief of Graduate Medical Education and Behavioral Health Integration at Sun River Health. Here's Dr. O'Connor. Okay, thank you very much. I uh, chief the Suicide Prevention Research Program in the Division of Services and Intervention Research at the National Institute of Mental Health. So suicide prevention is a major priority for NIMH. We have uh, multiple funding opportunity announcements that are specifically trying to reduce uh, suicide risk in various populations across different points in the chain of care. Um, It you know, one of the things that we're, we're really hoping that we can talk about today um, is the extent to which organizations, clinics, and higher education um, can create safe environments for both the service providers and the service users so that they can openly uh, share their experiences and, and receive uh, adequate support uh, in living their lives and um, dealing with whatever issues might come up for them. Uh, you know, one of the realities is that, uh, you know, you can't be your own doctor, just like you can't be your own therapist. We all have our own confirmation biases. So it's really critical that uh, there's the freedom for people to be able to um, not have to solve all their own problems themselves, but be able to share that with other people so that they can get some outside perspective. It's really crucial. Um, so with that, turn it over to Dr. Moutier. Thanks, Stephen, um, and to the AMA. It's great to be here and really excited to highlight this important topic of suicide prevention with a focus on ourselves. And what I will say is, as a psychiatrist and now the chief medical officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, my journey into really devoting my whole life's work to suicide prevention at the national level now, as I trace it back Um, in my own path, it really started with my own lived experience of struggles that I had while I was in medical school. And then, you know, that sort of very deep personal experience of the mismatch between the culture around you and the environment and the real freedom to address your own mental health needs as health needs. Um, That, you know, I was highly sensitized to that uh, because of my own personal experience. And then fast forward later, um, by the time, you know, 10 or 12 years later, I had become assistant dean for medical education and student affairs in the School of Medicine at UCSD. By that time, there had been a series of physician losses to suicide, uh, faculty physicians across all specialties. And so that lived experience and then the experience of loss of colleagues, you know, interestingly, as a psychiatrist, it was a little bit less focused actually on patient care and more about the, the community experience um, of, of how we can 
rise up and, and look at our policies and our informal sort of hidden curriculum, all the things that shape the sort of unspoken rules for uh, and by which we engage with our own human health needs, our family's needs, all of the things that we face at work um, and, and personally. Um, so I'm very excited to get into this because from my perspective, this is about a public health issue. We now have a growing body of science that informs the fact that suicide while complex is a health related behavior and, and health issue. And if you keep that health framework on everything we do, not just with regard to patient care and suicide prevention, but for ourselves. Um, and the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Dr. Pasichow to, to say a few words is that when it comes to our own health worker um, sense of well-being, mental health, and suicide risk reduction, I very much see it, th these issues as a shared responsibility between institutional leaders and really, you know, national leaders um, at, within the health, various health disciplines. And then of course us as individuals and what we can do for ourselves and for our colleagues, but we're limited um, by that until the environment changes to be a very fair um, and a place that is as destigmatized as possible around issues of mental health and struggle. So um, with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Dr. Pasichow. Hi, uh, Dr. Pat Pasichow. Yeah, I, I really appreciate, I think that was a great kind of lead into my experience as well. I come uh, at this from a, a lived experience perspective as well. Uh, my, my second year uh, EM faculty at Southern Illinois University in Springfield, Illinois. Um, and I did a EMS fellowship as well. So I'm an EMS medical director uh, and my, my approach to this comes from my own experiences as a second year resident. Um, I struggle with anxiety and depression of, uh, you know, fitting in in this and sort of feeling like I had a home within uh, medicine and emergency medicine, feeling like a competent physician, um, which I think is part of everyone's resident experience, sort of ebbs and flows in that. Um, and then at some point struggling with my own suicidality uh, and, and feeling like while I had an institution that was uh, set up to help me. There were still certain stigmas um, and certain perspectives that I had that prevented me from uh, getting access to the help that I needed. Um, and feeling like, you know, if I if I take the time now to get the mental health care that I need to be a good doctor to finish my residency, it'll impact my practice in the future, um, and would prevent me from actually completing uh, my training. Um, and and those perceptions were not accurate, um, but I, I, in Having the courage to share my story, um, I found that a lot of people share that same perspective, um, and so that's really where my uh, my focus and my advocacy work comes from. Is, is how can we get rid of uh, the pieces that are in place that might uh, give someone the impression that there is almost a, a punishment at the other end, um, you know, a, a limit on their ability to practice, and um, how true is that? Um, which probably less than I perceived at the time, and, and what steps can we take to continue to dismantle that um, so people don't feel that same pull of, if I take care of myself now, it might impact my ability to take care of my patient in the future. Um, so that's kind of where I come from and, and why I'm here to be part of the discussion and, and hopefully come up with some solutions. Um, I will pass it off to uh, Dr. Miller for introduction as well. 
Thanks, Dr. Pasichow. And, and, and again, to everyone, just thank you to the AMA and to, to the team and, and colleagues here to, to have this discussion. Um, my name is Dan Miller. I'm a family physician with Sun River Health in New York. Um, we are a, a large federally qualified health center. And I, and I think I'm, I'm here to bring kind of the community health center or a community health center perspective to the discussion. You know, there, there, there's so many places and ways to enter this discussion. And, and you know, when we were preparing for this, we, we talked about a number of them. I, I think I'll start by, by saying kind of the obvious that the suicidality does not fall out of the sky on us or just appear in us um, kind of from no place uh, on, on any given day. It's, it's intimately related to our life experiences, including those of trauma, oppression, and struggling with systems of inequity and racism in our country. Um, in community health centers, and I think, you know, for everyone here, we're acutely aware that, that for all of us, our health is most powerfully influenced by, I think, what has come to be called uh, social determinants or social drivers of health um, that include housing, employment and income, education, community safety and environment. And, you know, it's the notion that essentially our zip code affects our health and our well-being even more than our own individual health behaviors or the health care we receive. Um, and with that understanding, as we then deepen our understandings of systems and structures of inequity in our country, I think we come to realize that these same systems, these social drivers of health, housing, employment, education, community, are the same institutional mediators of systemic inequity. And so, you know, to, to us, I think what we've come to call the social drivers of health is really a euphemism and probably more accurately what we're dealing with are the health manifestations of racism, poverty, and oppression. Um, and, and how this relates to despair and suicidality. And, and, and I raise this to say really that I think our patients and our staff, I think are frequently unaware of this context that we're all living and working in. And so when we experience despair, uh, that's so common when struggling within systems of oppression, I think we all often feel that something is wrong with us. Um, that we have some personal inadequacy or deficit and we blame ourselves for our experiences of despair and hopelessness. And I think one of the most important things we can offer our patients and our staffs is this shared understanding that we're all living and working within these systems and to create ways to bring compassion to each other, to bring these experiences to the forefront um, and really address the issues of isolation, shame, and hopelessness that this all engenders. And, and I think as we get into this discussion, we'll, we'll talk about ways to do that. Um, glad to be here with everybody. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Okay, great. Well, thank you each for providing um, a little bit of um, insight into your unique perspectives that you bring to this discussion. Um, and so one thing I'd like to ask the panelists, could you just kind of speak to any types of advances that you've seen going on in suicide prevention or mental health in general, you know, things related to clinical practice, research, or uh, changes in cultural, um, cultural shifts within clinics, or 
maybe some of the things that Dr. Miller was just talking about um, uh, that are happening for, within the communities? Well, I can speak to the fact that, again, I see it as starting out um, with investments in, in science and really looking for answers to questions about what drives suicide risk up. And it's a very obviously complex um, field of study in the sense that, you know, there, there are individuals with individual factors, genetics, early trauma, um, environmental factors of oppression, as Dr. Miller was was expressing, but that for you know for individuals and populations, it's it's always a multifaceted pathway, and so you know I think now that we're seeing some of those not only um, scientifically informed answers about what drives suicide risk up, but we're also seeing. Um, treatments as well as community-based. So the full public health model is really needing to be applied with a scientific inquiry. And, and I think um, advocacy and those of us with lived experience or who've experienced loss speaking out, that is all changing the culture. So um, we're seeing just major culture shifts with regard to opening up of attitudes related to mental health experiences, as well as suicide related experiences. And, and now I think we're in a transition period as a society where we're trying to figure out what does that mean um, besides for patient care, which is a whole other um, important topic about how do we scale suicide preventive practice, not just in psychiatric care, but you know across primary care and in emergency departments. Um, but but for our own colleagues and ourselves, I see that as fitting in the public health perspective more as actually community-based suicide prevention. And um, so there, there are huge advances going on with regard to, I think, the general public's understanding that suicide can be prevented, that some of the old myths about weakness um, and other things that, that really don't, are not borne out by the science are being cleared up. Um, we're seeing engagement with industries far outside of healthcare, you know, um, with entertainment and news media and work, now workplace suicide prevention is a very growing um, and hot area of interest, believe it or not, in the construction industry. And, you know, so I'm talking like way outside of healthcare. Um, so that that is all very exciting, but I think we are still really trying to figure out what does that look like boots on the ground to make a difference for people as they're facing these real issues um, and, and to make help available and, and even better to not wait until crisis is happening, but to work far, far upstream, create environments that are open, equitable, um, and, and again, for me, it's, it's an issue of, is mental health being treated as a health issue? Because if it were, we would not be having to look at those punitive consequences as even in the realm of possibilities with regard to you know, medical and nurses, nursing, licensing and hospital privileging. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Miller. Yeah, if I could join here, Christine, I, I think you're naming it. I think you're naming it beautifully. Um, very, very painful experience, and uh, and naming this and sharing it with us here in in this community. Um, you know, Christine, I think as you're saying, there there's so many there's so many levels here. There's, you know, how how does how does one create 
the, the places to respond to crisis. And as you say, how do we change culture way, way, way before crisis? Um, and, and, and obviously changing culture is slow, but, but crucial. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll name a few things that, that we're doing in, in our own system. And, and I think we're, we're, we're not alone in any of this uh, and, and partnering with many others to do this. So a number of years ago, we, we instituted what would get called Schwartz rounds. Uh, I think there's many names for this. We used to call them balance groups, you know, in the old days and talk circles of, of where are the places to create safety for us to come together as a community to speak from the heart and feel support and compassion for the places that are tender in us. Um, and, and as we do that, and as we share our own difficult experiences, I think we begin to open up the experiences of isolation and hopelessness that, that are so central to uh, to I think to to suicidality, um, and and Christine, as you're saying, to 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 make these conversations to let them be normal because they are normal, and because the experiences of of despair and pain are normal experiences. Um, it's the isolation and the shame, and uh, and the hopelessness that brings that that become much more difficult. Um, and so we, you know, we do those, we do those every month and we open them up to everybody. And, and then we do those sessions also at times that we know are tougher, you know, in, in one of our pediatric practices over the course of two months, two babies died in the office, which are, you know, enormously painful experiences for staff. Those things almost never happen. And, and so we know that, that people are carrying around pain and some are carrying around the thoughts of, you know, maybe if I had done something different and blame and, and so then creating those times and places to come together to say, this is a time for us to join as a community with our hearts and, you know, and our souls and be together. And I think creating those spaces is one of the places that helps create a different culture. Yeah, I, I agree more with, with what you what you both really just touched upon. Um, I certainly have had a very positive experience to sharing my story and my struggle um, and seeing the number of people that, you know, I had no idea were going through a similar experience around me. Um, and uh, I, I think the theme I've gotten from some of the, the stories after the fact um, is that there's commonality between all, but the approach that works best for someone to actually be a successful intervention is going to be slightly different. Um, and, and that time. Uh, and so I say that for two reasons. Uh, one, whether it's peer to peer, uh, some sort of a group therapy session. Uh, I've also seen models that look at, you know, scheduling, you know, as part of your clinical hours an hour once a year, I've actually seen the therapist. Um, and actually sort of strongly encouraging that interaction. Um, there's definitely been some impact and there are a couple of pilot studies that have looked at that. Um, scheduling it as part of a residence regular schedule so it becomes, you know, an opt-out um, as opposed to me having to stand up and raise my hand and say, I want to participate in this. The expectation is that everyone will participate in some level and if you choose not to, that's, you have the ability to, obviously we don't want to get rid of individual choice, um, but sort of Putting a, 
putting your thumb on the scale a little bit and saying this is something that we think is important um, for people to participate in. Um, and uh, you know, some months are going to be better than others. Some uh, periods of time are going to be better than others. So kind of varying that schedule of you know when the peer to peer session is um, and realizing that uh, just because you have one and not every not everyone attends or no one attends the first time, um, that doesn't mean that it, it, it still isn't an important thing for you to continue. Um, you know, sometimes low attendance or low uptake initially is just feeling out the process. Um, and any one or two people that you can help can really have a huge impact on this. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Yeah, so just kind of piggybacking on that, just very directly, what do you think that physicians should do if they uh, notice signs of mental health worsening or suicide intensity in themselves? Well, I, I think, you know, this is really to make it very down to earth. Not everyone is necessarily ready to, um, you know, to speak with their physician or to find a mental health professional, although that is of course, the, a very highly recommended strategy, because while having suicidal thoughts is, is actually very common in the general population and in us as, as a healthcare professional community, they, it does signal a very serious level of distress. So I would, um, on the one hand, absolutely agree that distress and despair and um, all kinds of experiences with regard to our mental health are so normal, uh, are so common that we can call them a normal part of the human experience. But it can, it does signal that it's time to reach out um, and take a step. And so I just say to colleagues, um, think of one person who's made it clear that they are a safe person. They're they're trustworthy. That they've been through something themselves. That they'll be able to, um, you know, just practice active listening skills and hear you out. And that might be your first step, whether it's a colleague, a mentor, um, somebody outside your professional workplace is certainly fine. I think any pathway that is that feels safe to you where you can take that first step and begin to express um, what you're experiencing. There, I think sometimes we wonder, what will talking about our distress do to help ourselves and I don't want to you know load that on anybody else but the fact is that the suicide prevention science tells us that interpersonal connectedness can make a huge difference and that disclosing what you're actually experiencing can be the first step of of a, a normalizing that we can reach out and get help so um, you know I think that for all of us there are safe people in our lives. Um, and, and I think beyond that, of course, know that there are crisis resources that you can always reach out to via 988 and ones that are clinician or even physician specific that are completely anonymous and safe to do. The physician support line, for example, being one. Christine, I, just, I, I, I you know, I, I want to agree and, and just 
add a, just the little bit, you know, maybe just say it in, in my own words, but, you know, as you say, um, what we do is hard. And, and so there, there's a lot of times when, when we all struggle and um, when we get to that place of contemplating hurting ourselves or dying by suicide, um, it's, it's a real marker to, to us. You know, when you see, Stephen, what do we do when we get there? Um, it's a time to ask for help. Um, and, and, you know, to, to, it's a time to reach out, to, to not, to, to let go of the notion that we're supposed to manage this all ourselves. Um, and whether it's a colleague or a family member or a therapist, that, you know, a, the, the first step is to not be alone in this and ask for help and, and to just say, you know, I, I need some help here. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's the beginning. Um, there, there is no expectation that we're supposed to manage and carry this all internally ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so maybe Dr. Paschal, you could pick up this next question because I, I, this conversation is kind of building on itself and I think we're just sort of deepening, you know, uh, where we're going with this. But I think that, um, you know, an observation could be made that the decisions, the behaviors that people display are kind of a reflection of the learning that's occurred. Um, so if you're looking at uh, positions in the workplace, you know, they've sort of, um, they're, in, they're an encapsulation of all the messaging and the learning that they've gotten to that point about how to understand their own experience and maybe the choices that they're making. So discussions like this are trying to help inform culture change and differences in, in behaviors in terms of reaching out. Uh, but there have been questions about what's happening upstream um, early in medical education. Uh, that can contribute to, you know, um, maybe uh, different decisions by physicians that potentially could save their life. I mean, I think conversations like this, um, either in a large group setting or even in a smaller uh, setting is really uh, the key to it. Um, not just uh, waiting for the individual to self-identify um, if they're having these struggles, find someone to reach out to, but um, when, when you have had success in working through it, sharing that story, as one of the questions was asked, you know, had a, a struggle with your own family uh, and, and had an outcome that you didn't like um, and, and you want to make a change um, for the future, just being a place to say, you know, this is this was my experience um, and, and I want to do something different and I hope that there's a different outcome for the people around me and, um, you know, just taking that moment of, of sharing that story really creates a connection in the people around you. And, uh, they, don't feel that you as an individual are the person that they would go to. Um, it helps to normalize the fact that there is help out there um, and that there isn't going to be a uh, repercussion on the other end that some people might be fearing, uh, you know, of, of a licensure um, action or, or something like that. That if you take care of it, uh, you know, in the moment as it's happening, um, you can mitigate a lot of the, the downstream effects. Um, and I think there's also been a, a fair amount of pressure from the AMA, from the Federation of State Medical Boards um, to say, you know, when, when individuals are caring for their mental health, no differently than their physical health, you know, we need to not be punishing them on the back end um, and removing questions that don't provide useful information from the, the medical licensure process. Um, and, and that work has, 
been happening over the last decade and continues to happen. And the more conversations we're having in this space and the more people are talking about their experience um, and the value that it brings um, is really, uh, really important. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.